Joshua chapter 6 and 7, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the negative accounts in Scripture. Wouldn't it be nice if we could read through the Old Testament and just find nothing but the, the, the joyful stories, the blessed stories? But interspersed throughout these are the times when the people of God fail. And that is so much more realistic to our lives. We don't go through the Christian life from victory to victory. There's in between those victories, there's our failures. There's those sins that have to be addressed. And as we're preparing and praying for a time of revival, this passage really reminds me somewhat of where we have been. Joshua is going to be on his face praying and calling out to God, God, we need you to do something. Things are not as they should be. And God says, get up and deal with the sin. Sometimes we pray and we're seeking God for revival and the work that is needed for us to experience revival is for us to deal with the sin that is in our hearts. Now it's easy for us immediately when we start talking about sin to immediately think of the sins of those around us. To think about, oh, I, boy, I sure hope so-and-so is listening this morning. I sure hope, they're, I sure hope they hear what the preacher's talking about. No, I want, here's what I want to ask you to do this morning. That's what I've done in the early service. It's what I'll do again now, and I'm asking you to do the same. Ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you through this word. God, what are you saying to me? What is the sin in my heart that must be dealt with in order for you to do the work, for your power to be experienced in my life, in the life of my family, in the life of our church? Because our sins are not limited in their consequences to ourselves. Our sins affect all those around us. A lot of people think, well, I, this, this sin's just between me and myself or me and another person. It's not really hurting anyone. There are consequences to the sins, as we'll see in this story this morning. In this story, the children of Israel cross over the Jordan, and the first city that they encounter is the city of Jericho. The city of Jericho is a walled city. It's a strong city, and it is one that has already been intimidated by God. Rahab the harlot, as she hid the two spies, said, We have heard what God has done for you. We've heard your God's story. And we know what you have done, and so we are fearful. And so this large city that they were attacking and they were going to go into, God says, don't touch anything in this city. Leave Rahab, leave her family, save them, but don't take any spoils. Don't touch anything. Everything is to be destroyed. Everything is to be wiped out. Now, there is a tendency in our minds, and especially in our modern day, for us to ask ourselves the question, well, what are the reasons for this commandment? What's the reason? Why does God say this? I hear people say occasionally, where does God get the right to tell me what to do? Now, just think about that statement just for a minute. Where does God get the right? He gets the right because he is God and you are not. Let me say that again because some of you didn't sing. I don't think it sunk in yet. He gets the right to tell us what we can do and we can't do because he is God and we are not. And so God set some boundaries. Why did God set the boundaries? We could probably try to extrapolate and figure out some things or reasons why God didn't want them to mess with this stuff. But the fact is, God said, here's the boundary, don't cross it. Just like he did with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. 
don't eat of the fruit of this tree. Well, why not? Like a lot of times with, with children. And, well, well, Daddy, why don't you want me to do this? Why, why can't I do this? And God says, don't cross this boundary. This is the accursed thing. These are things that you're not supposed to do. Now, we can find all kinds of rationalizations. We can find all sorts of explanations and justifications, and we can blame other people. This is why I'm doing it. But it all boils down to if God says don't do it, don't do it. And if God says do it, then we do it. It doesn't get any simpler than that. And so God says don't touch these things. And so they go in, and they, of course, they march around the walls of Jericho, and they do this for seven days. And they don't have to do a thing. God brings the walls down, and they get to attack the city and conquer the city. And at the end of chapter 6, we read this verse. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was noised throughout all the country. But, verse seven, chapter 7 and verse 1, the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing, for Achan, and it names his father and his grandfather and the family of the tribe that he comes from, and then the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. The anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. Do you understand? Do we know that God takes sin seriously? In a day and in a time when even Christian people want to make light of sin. We want to say it's not that big of a deal. Well, this sin is not that important. God takes sin very seriously. And what Achan did angered the Lord. The anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. And let me tell you, when an almighty, omnipotent God gets angry, we are, as Jonathan Edwards put it in his famous sermon, sinners in the hands of an angry God. We don't like to think of God as angry because we perceive anger through our flawed human experience. We've seen people get angry and do sinful things. We've seen people get angry for sinful reasons. What this is is a perfect God getting angry for righteous reasons, getting ready to do something which is completely and wholly righteous and holy and perfect. And he calls to Joshua as Joshua is praying and between this, between verse 1 and Joshua's prayer, there's another little city that's up the ways from Jericho, a little town called Ai. And they send spies to go up. They send some scouts to go up. And the scouts come back and they say, well, it's not that big of a city. There's no need the whole army going up against Ai. Let's just send a few thousand people up. Now, some will try to say, well, there's pride in that, and maybe there was or maybe there wasn't. Maybe it was just common sense. It really didn't matter at this point who they sent or how many they sent. The problem was there was sin in the camp. They could have sent the whole army. But they knew that surely God is on our side. And there is a danger when we're used to seeing God at work in our life for us to allow sin to creep in and hinder that work and we're so used to the spirit of God at work in us and we're so used to seeing the spirit of God and the power of God and we're so used to coming to church and experiencing the glory of God that it can depart and we're not even aware of it we're a lot like Samson remember the story of Samson in the book of Judges Samson his hair 
cannot be cut. It's the source of his power. But he gives his secret away to Delilah. She cuts his hair. And then she says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he rose up to go against them like he had at other times. But he wist not that the Spirit of God was departed from him. How often do we think, oh, things are going to be just like normal. This is the way it is. And what we don't realize is that sin has crept in and sin is keeping us from experiencing that work of God in our lives. And there's sin in the camp of Israel. And so the few thousand soldiers go up and they are plenty to do the job, but when they get up there, the enemy draws them in, thinking that they are winning, and they draw them into an ambush, and 36 men of Israel are, de- are killed, and they're defeated, many more wounded, and they flee back in humiliation and defeat. And it's bad enough that 36 people are dead, but now, here is the invincible Israel that has put fear into the hearts of the Canaanite kingdoms, and now they've been shown that they're not quite as invincible as they thought. Much like a sports team that develops a reputation for being unbeatable. And everybody that plays them thinks, oh, well, there's no way we're going to beat them. And then somebody finally does beat them, and ah, maybe they're not so tough as everybody thought, and suddenly everybody wants a piece of them. And now here's the Israelites that have come out of Egypt, and they've defeated everybody, and they've crossed the Red Sea, and they've crossed the Jordan, and God is on their side, and they can't be beaten. Suddenly now, Maybe they can. So beyond the 36 that have died, here's all the nations around that could suddenly band together. And Joshua knows the danger that they are in, that this has brought on them. And beyond that, notice what Joshua says in his prayer. As he falls on his face before God, he says at the end of verse 9, What wilt thou do unto thy great name? Joshua's concerned about the name of God. Let me tell you that a powerless church a church that has sin in its midst, a family that has sin in their hearts, an individual that has unconfessed, unresolved, undealt with sin is going to be a detriment to the name of Christ. Joshua says, God, what about your name? But I love what God says to Joshua. I mentioned this Wednesday night. God says, Joshua, get up. Get up and deal with the sin. And I sometimes wonder in our prayer, as we are taking a prayer initiative to pray for a revival, if God may not speak to us and say, get up off your face, get up off your knees, and deal with the sin that's in your heart before I can do anything, before I will do anything. In fact, the work of revival is a work of restoration. It is God restoring us to the place that we ought to be. Why are we not where we're supposed to be? Because of unconfessed sin in our lives. So God says, deal with that sin. It must be dealt with. This is a theme throughout Scripture. A little leaven, the Bible says, leavens the whole lump. Purge out the old leaven, therefore. This is what God says for Joshua. He says, there is sin in the camp. In verse 12, or verse 13, he says, sanctify the people. And say, sanctify yourselves against tomorrow. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, There is an accursed thing in the midst of thee, O Israel. Thou canst not stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. Some people wonder why they constantly are beating their, seem like they're beating their head against the wall. Why there's constant conflict, there's constant struggle. And many times, 
whether it's an individual, whether it's a family, whether it's a community, whether it's a church, whether it's an organization, it comes back to sin that is in the camp. God says it's got to be purged out. It's got to be dealt with. So sanctify yourselves. Get yourselves ready because tomorrow we're going to deal with this. So God calls through Joshua all the people of Israel together. They're divided into their various tribes. They all have their areas that they camp in and they live in. And they're all there together. And God says, all right, we're going we're gonna to narrow it down. And God, out of the 12 tribes, narrows it down to the tribe of Judah. And within the tribe of Judah, he narrows it down to one of the families, one of the larger family groups. And then within that group, he narrows it down to one particular family. And as that family stands, man by man by man, the Bible says, there is one individual that stands out, and it is this man, Achan. Joshua says to him in verse 19, Joshua said to Achan, my son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession unto him and tell me now what thou hast done. Hide it not from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel and thus and thus have I done. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonian garment and 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight. Then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are hid in the earth, in the midst of my tent, and the silver under it. Joshua sends messengers to his tent, and sure enough, it's exactly as he says. He has taken his sin and tried to hide it. Isn't that human nature? What did Adam and Eve try to do in the Garden of Eden when they sinned and they discovered that they were naked they took thick thick leaves and sewed them together and tried to cover their nakedness and their shame and then they hid in the bushes what happens to leaves when you pluck them off of a bush they start to turn and they show deadness you don't hide very well in living bushes with dead leaves and you don't hide your sin very well in the midst of righteousness just because you've tried to cover it up God says to, or Joshua says, go and dig this up, and they bring it, and Israel deals with this sin. All Israel stoned Achan with stones, burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And then verse 26, I want you to see this. I spoke last week of monuments. Here's a monument, another pile of stones. And they raised over him, over Achan and his family, a great heap of stones unto this day. Why does God put stories like this in the Bible? It'd be a whole lot easier if he didn't. It'd be a whole lot easier to read through the scriptures and see all the joyful things. When I was a child, I loved reading about David. I had one of those Bible story books with a little green cassette. I'm not even going to try to explain to some of y'all what a cassette is, but some of y'all know. And it would read a page, and it would be, at the beginning, it would say, at the sound of the tone, turn the page. Dong! And you turn the page. How many of y'all, y'all remember? I had, that, I had that cassette memorized. In fact, I pulled out the cassette sometime back. I've got, still got it. I don't think I have a cassette player in the house to play it on. But I could still quote that almost word for word through that. I listened to it so many times. It's amazing that it still works. And I loved the story of David. But as I got older 
and began to be introduced to some of the other stories of David, I found out that David wasn't quite the wonderful person that I had imagined him as a child. And you begin to ask yourself, God, why do you put these stories in the Bible? Why do you put these for us to read? And Paul says in the book of Romans that these stories are given for our admonition. They are given for us to learn. And this story of Achan is given to us as a challenge. It is given to us as an admonition for us to look at our lives. Where are we in relation to sin? In the book of Numbers, God would say to Moses, Be sure, say to the people, be sure your sins will find you out. That is exactly what takes place in this story. As we look at it this morning, I want to just quickly draw a few questions for us to ask ourselves. And I want to ask you to honestly look at your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to shine His light on your heart so that as we prepare and we pray for revival, the reason that we need revival is because there is sin in our hearts and there's things that need to be changed, whether it's open, overt sin, the sins of commission, or whether it's the things that we've just begun to slack in and we're not spending the time with God, the sins, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is a sin. So it's the things that we're not doing. What are those things that need to change? What is God speaking to you about? Let me ask you the question first that we would see in this story. Have you been captured by the charm of sin? Have you been captured by the charm of sin? Do you see what happened in Achan's life? Achan said, I looked, I saw, and I coveted. It starts with looking at something that is attractive, that is appealing. It might be a a possession. It might be a person. It might be a position or something in our life, and we look at it and we say, oh, that would be wonderful. There are those who will say, well, there's nothing, there's nothing pleasant about sin. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says of Joseph that he chose to endure suffering with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. In other words, there's, there's, the reason sin is tempting is because there's something appealing about it. James chapter 1 and verse 14 and 15, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. What entices us? That which is appealing. And Achan looks and he sees this and it it seems like something that he would want. How is he going to wear it without somebody knowing where it came from? How is he going to spend that gold? At that moment of temptation, it doesn't matter. What matters is he wants to possess it. If he has it, it will satisfy him. If he has it, it will please him. And he chooses to take it, even though it is against God's command and it is the accursed thing. He reaches out and he takes it. And I can see him skulking through the streets of Jericho, taking it back to his tent, furtively hiding over to the side and digging a hole, hoping no one sees him as he hides that gold and that silver and that clothing. Have you been caught in the charm? Have you been captured by the charm of sin? Sin looks good. Sin is appealing. And if I just, I'll do this. And I'll only do this once. It'll just be a one-time thing. And the more we do it, the more we want it. Have you ever noticed that you develop an appetite for what you consistently consume? I've found that there are Example, certain carbonated beverages that I used to drink quite a bit. 
that over the years as I quit drinking them, I finally have decided, man, I, can't, I don't even know how I ever drunk that. Some of them are so sweet. Some of them are so weird. I don't know where I, why did it appeal to me? It appealed to me because I drank it so much that my body began to desire it. My taste began to desire it. And when we continually consume that sin, we not only see it as a temporary pleasure, we see it as something that we can't live without. And it becomes an idol. It becomes something that we worship in our lives and we must have it. And Achan reaches out and he takes, he said, I coveted it and I took it. Second question we need to ask ourselves is, have we counted the cost of sin? Have we counted the cost of sin? Now, I'm not talking about what I'll mention in a moment, the consequences. Have we been made aware of the consequences of our sins? I'm asking, what does it take? What is your price? What does it take to get you to sin? You see, people will say, well, why did God get so upset over a piece of clothing and a little gold and silver? Because that's what it took. That's all it took to get Achan to break God's law. You know, if Achan had been offered a kingdom, or Achan had been offered a position of authority with millions of dollars, great authority, we would possibly say, hey, we understand that. That was a big temptation. I mean, Satan offered Jesus the kingdoms of this earth. That's a real temptation. Here's a man that sold his soul. Here's a man that cursed his family, that hindered the work of God, that brought blasphemy to the name of God over a piece of clothing and a little money. You see, the truth is, the lower the cost for us to sin, the greater the offense. Can you imagine what it says to God when his children will disobey him for something so simple as a moment's pleasure for something just momentary I'm not talking about turning our back on God for the whole world and Satan can't offer the whole world he offers it he offered to Jesus here's the kingdoms of this earth but the kingdoms of this earth don't belong to Satan the pleasure that is offered isn't his to give but how low will we sell what is our price the lower the price, the lower the cost, the greater the offense. That's why God takes it so seriously. That's why God takes what we consider small things seriously. God takes the truth very seriously. God takes love within a family very seriously. I had the privilege yesterday to stand and lead a young man and a young woman in their marriage vows and I hopefully convey to them how seriously God takes those vows. The Bible says don't make a vow and not keep it. It's better not to make it at all. God takes sin very seriously. What is the cost? Number three, here's a question. Are you caught in the callousness of sin? You see, when we first begin to sin, there can be a little bit of a conviction about it. We feel guilty over it. We're concerned about what it might do to those around us. But do you see the callousness of Achan? He ignored what would happen to his nation. 36 men die in battle. 36 funerals. 36 families that have lost a father, a son, a brother. 36, not to mention what it does to the nation. The 
fear that God had established in the people around. The consequences on his own family. He doesn't care. You see, when we give in to that temptation, we're no longer convicted. We have a conscience that the Bible says is seared with a hot iron. There's no feeling to it. It is calloused. And do you see what happens when God gives Achan moment after moment to repent? God says, call the people together. We're going to choose among the 12 tribes. Judah is chosen. At that moment, Achan has the opportunity to step forward and say, enough of this. We don't have to do this. It was me. I'm not going to take the chance. I'm not going to drag my tribe through this. But he stands quietly, perhaps hoping that it won't come out. Well, maybe that was just a lucky guess. Joshua's probably the one doing this anyway. It's not really God. And so then they pick the next level down, and they pick the, the grandfather of Achan and that grouping, that family grouping. And at that moment, God has given Achan another opportunity to repent, to step forward and say, I don't want to put my family through this. Enough. I, I did it. I'm the one that should suffer. I'm the one. And if I believe at any of that moment, any of those moments, that if Achan had genuinely and sincerely repented of his sins, that God would have forgiven him. But Achan stands silent. Why? Because he's calloused about what his sin is doing to those around him. He just doesn't care. Down to his father and the family. And he stands there with his brothers in the same family. And God has given him season to repent. God's given him opportunities to repent. And he says, how many times has God given you the opportunity to confess that sin, to turn from that sin that you're holding on to, to turn from the sin in your life? How many times has God given you the opportunity and you've stood silent and said, I'll do it another time, or it's not that bad, or somebody else caused me to do it, or other people are doing worse, or I'll, I'll, I'll deal with it down the road. And we make every excuse and God says, Here's the opportunity to repent. Here's the opportunity to repent. And it finally reaches to the point in verse 18. He brought his household man by man, and Achan was taken. And Joshua said unto Achan, My son, give, I pray thee, glory to God, and make confession unto him. And tell me now what thou hast done. Verse 20. Now we see Achan's confession. Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God. But it's kind of hard to take this as a sincere confession and repentance when he only does so when he has no other choice. He only repents and confesses when he is in the spotlight, when now it's clear. True repentance doesn't wait until you've gotten caught. True repentance acknowledges it when you are made aware of the sinfulness. I can remember as a child, my mom and dad saying, I want you to be sorry, not that you got caught. You need to be sorry for what you've done. Achan doesn't seem to be sorry for what he's done. Achan seems to be sorry for the fact that he got caught. His callousness. A fourth question, have you considered the consequences of your sin? Sin has consequences. You can, you can claim all you want to 
that it doesn't. People think, oh, this is just, this is just me. It's not the way it works. Sin has consequences. And you can make your choices in life, but you cannot choose your consequences. Another pile of stones is laid. There's consequences for Israel. There's consequences for the name of God. There's consequences for every part of his family and tribe. There is consequences for his family that is stoned along with him. And there is consequences for Achan. And he says that great pile of stones is there to this day. It's not too far from a pile of stones I talked about last week. Remember what God has done? This is a monument to what God does too. God deals with sin. If we do not deal with sin, God will. You have troubled Israel, Joshua says to Achan. Now God's going to trouble you. If I am a child of God and I commit sin and I remain in that sin unconfessed and unrepentant, God is going to chasten me as his child. If you be without chastisement, the Bible says, whereof all are partakers, then you are not really sons of God. And he uses a very strong word that I won't use this morning for sake of company, but it's a word not just of a person who is not a child of God, but of someone who claims to be a son but doesn't have the full rights of sonship. This is talking about people who claim to be believers. How do we know? One of the ways that we know that a person is a child of God is when God deals with the sin in their life. Whom he loves, Revelation says, he chastens. And so God calls to us to deal with the sin in our lives. They stoned it. Now, I'm not suggesting, as some do, that we should reestablish Old Testament law and start stoning sinners. That's not grace. That's not what the Bible teaches. But I am saying what the Puritan pastor John Owen said a couple of hundred years ago, you better be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And that's exactly what they're doing. Sin was killing Israel. So God says you better kill that sin. But preacher, it's not a big sin. It's just a little sin. It's sin in the sight of God. And what starts as a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. Another pile of stones. Let me give you one last question. In this story, are you conv convicted to confess your sins? If you are, that's a work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. When the Holy Spirit speaks and shows what the psalmist said, cleanse thou me from secret faults. Cleanse me from purposeful, willful sins. Purge me from presumptuous sins. Do what he says in our Psalm 119 text. Purge out the dross. Purge out the impurities. That's what we need God to do in our lives. That's what we need to experience revival as a church, for God to clean us out and to purge us. When we've experienced revival in the past, when we've seen God do a work, it started when God's people began to look within themselves and say, Holy Spirit, show me where I need to confess. Show me where I need to change. Show me what the sin is. Help me to drag it outside the camp and stone the daylights out of it because it is killing me. And that's when God begins to bless. We could go on into chapter 8, and you know what God says in chapter 8? Okay, you've dealt with the sin. 
Now I want you to go back against Ai. Here's the plan. And you know what this time they do? They obey God. And God brings the victory. Another pile of stones. What will you do with the sin in your heart? Will you address it? Will you continue to excuse it? Will you continue to hide it? Will you dig a hole in your tent and bury it, hoping no one finds out about it? Surely no one's going to see it. Let me tell you, it's not what I know. I look around and I, I don't know what your sins are. I know that we're human beings and we all have sins. But I'll tell you two people that do know. You know. And God knows. Are you convicted to confess? I love what happens. You see, they dealt with the sin. How do we deal with our sin? We do what he says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, if we say the same thing about our sins that God says about it, if we confess and we repent of our sins, that's what he calls us to is repentance. If we confess our sins, God, this is sin, this is wrong, I am turning from this. He is faithful and he is just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you can get up and walk away clean in your heart. It's what God calls us to because of his great love for us. Father, I pray this morning that you will speak to our hearts. Help us in this moment, Lord, to deal with our sin. Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit conviction to settle in this place. And I pray that this morning, Lord, we will be obedient and respond accordingly to deal with the sin that is in our personal camps, that is within our hearts, within our families, and within our church. Father, I pray that you'll speak to us, convict, move, 